From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If you look at what really matters in life, the kind of things that matter on your deathbed, you know, that you think back on, written in your eulogy that, you know, that you regret deeply if you don't do later, the majority of those things are not deadline-based. That's Tim Urban. He's the brain behind the wildly popular blog, Wait But Why, where he writes long-form pieces about, well, almost everything. Artificial intelligence, relationships, mortality, human psychology, and so much more. Tim's 2016 TED Talk about why people procrastinate is among the most viewed TED Talks ever. Tim's work aims to dig deep into the human brain and explain huge, complicated topics to the everyday person. And to do that, he has to reach, in his words, about a 6 out of 10 on an expertise scale for each of the topics he writes about. Tim joins me to discuss what's behind his work, why we procrastinate, and how what psychologists call pluralistic ignorance drives political and social tribalism. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hey folks, Preet here. Today's the day, March 31st. We're bringing Stay Tuned to New York's Town Hall Theater for our first live show in over two years. I'll be in conversation with Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster, and one of our most powerful voices on Russia and Ukraine, and Ben Stiller, the hilarious and brilliant actor, director, producer, and goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency. Plus a special appearance from Alexander Vindman, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Director for European Affairs at the National Security Council. It's going to be a night that will make you think and laugh and reflect. You'll also learn a whole lot about the challenges facing our democracy and the rest of the world. The show is tonight at 7 p.m. You can buy tickets at cafe.com slash events. That's cafe.com slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Amy, who asks, What's the significance, if any, behind U.S. District Judge David Carter's ruling that attorney-client privilege doesn't hold up for certain communication between Donald Trump and his lawyer John Eastman? Is Judge Carter's assessment in civil court applicable in a criminal prosecution against Trump? Well, that's a good question and something that I think a lot of people have been talking about and speculating about. To be clear, one of the bases on which the judge decided that attorney-client privilege does not attach or apply to some of these communications between Trump and Eastman is something called the crime fraud exception. That doctrine basically says that if instead of providing advice of a legal nature, you're instead having communications about a future commission of, of a crime, a violation of a criminal statute, that should not be shielded by cynical use of the attorney-client privilege assertion. Here, the judge, in, in pretty strong detail, lays out the case for believing, and he says this very flatly, 
for believing there is evidence to suggest that Donald Trump and John Eastman engaged in conduct established by these communications that related to the future commission of a crime, namely obstruction of a proceeding in Congress and conspiracy to defraud the United States of America. Now, the direct significance of that is that these documents have to be turned over, probably pending an appeal. What's the significance for public perception? I think pretty significant. It's even significant to me because now you have a federal district court judge, not some random pundit or former federal prosecutor like me and others, but a sitting federal district court judge who is fairly clear-eyed and respected and a non-outlier as far as I understand it, taking a cold, hard look at particular pieces of evidence and drawing a conclusion that they support a potential finding of criminal conduct. It is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It does not mean that any other person, even if the judge himself was a prosecutor, would see fit to bring the case, but it meets a certain threshold for purposes of the crime fraud exception. Now you ask, is the decision by the judge applicable in a criminal prosecution? It's not. The fact that the judge found support or evidence of a potential crime is not something that would be admissible in a grand jury proceeding for an indictment of Donald Trump or in a future trial of Donald Trump. Rather, the way I think of the judge's opinion is a basis or a model for other people who are looking at the evidence, namely, potentially, federal prosecutors in the Department of Justice to see what the analysis is, see if they agree with the analysis, and see if they independently come to the same conclusion. And if they do, and they think there's a, enough of a quantum of evidence to ultimately prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, then they will. But they're not directly related to each other. This question comes in an email from Mark, who asks, what's the importance of the revelation about internal White House records that show a gap in President Trump's phone logs for more than seven hours on January 6, 2021? Could this finally move the needle on a criminal investigation? Well, Mark, this is a revelation that's getting a lot of attention. And specifically, the fact that there's a seven-hour and 37-minute gap. Now, as you can imagine, people are comparing this to the missing 18 minutes of tape in the Watergate scandal. What's missing here in the Trump case are call logs, not the substance of the calls. There's no taping of these calls that we're aware of. But it does show that there's a missing piece of evidence at the particular time that the events of January 6th were unfolding, and it's a little bit odd. And as people have also pointed out, it's not the case that Trump wasn't making calls during that period because we have reporting and evidence that he was talking to other people. During this time period, there's just a gap in the official call log. Now, people are asking, what's the relevance to this with respect to Trump's state of mind? And, you know, that depends. There's a decent argument to be made, I guess, depending on what the other facts show, that the absence of this call record is an attempt by Trump or people around Trump to engage in something of a cover-up, not wanting people to know who he was in contact with as the insurrection was taking place on Capitol Hill. It strikes me that the Trump folks might make an argument, I don't know how far it goes, but they might make the argument that, look, Donald Trump is a guy who wasn't trying to excuse or hide or cover up any particular things that were going on on that day, January 6th, because this is the kind of sloppiness he engages in all the time. Sometimes he rips up documents, as we've heard, there's reporting that sometimes he flushes them down the toilet, a whole bunch of documents somehow and inappropriately ended up in Mar-a-Lago. So they would say, there's no particular insight to be gained from the fact that there's this gap in the call log because he does this all the time and has been doing it for some number of years. Now, my response to that is, I don't know how far that gets you because you could make the argument that the reason that Donald Trump engages in this behavior, ripping up notes and otherwise disposing of them and mishandling them, is there's lots of things over the course of his presidency, he's trying to cover up or hide 
or not allow to become public. So it'll be an interesting back and forth. I think to the extent people are concerned that they won't get to the bottom of who was calling whom, I'm not sure that's a serious concern because we do know some of the other parties who are receiving phone calls, and you can reverse engineer where those calls were coming from. But as with all things, I imagine that in the January 6th committee's report, this will be another example of a way in which the Trump folks violated policy, violated rules, were not transparent, and they will suggest that you draw an adverse inference from those kinds of things. Yeah, all of that indicates some motivation, you can argue, to hide something. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Procrastination plagues many of us, myself included. But procrastinating on an assignment has different implications than procrastinating on making big life changes. Tim Urban is the voice behind the popular blog, Wait But Why? He's on a mission to explain things how technologies, relationships, groups, and our minds operate. Tim Urban, writer, co-founder of Wait But Why, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to talk to you. You have done so much writing, so much thinking, so much contemplating. I want to get to some of the issues you talk about, and I have a lot of favorites. But for the very few people among our audience who may not be familiar with you and your work, who is Tim Urban? Um, I am a, uh, writer, uh, blogger. I'm not sure what that word even means, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I write long things online. Um, I, I do stick figure illustrations and long form writing to kind of dive really hard for a sh- short amount of time into one topic and then move on to other topics. So I can kind of follow my curiosity, um, through like the equivalent of like a bunch of one Oh, one Oh one classes. Uh, and, um, that's yeah. That's 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 mostly what I do, and then I'm now working on a book, uh, which is kind of a, a a different beast of a project. Oh, we're going to get to the book and and how you went about writing it, and I know, I know it comes out in a few months. But you're doing something interesting that there are not there are a lot of naysayers about, and that is that you write long form. I thought long form was dead, and nobody liked it anymore, and the whole world was moving towards the Axios list format. Yeah, I mean, but if you think about it, like books aren't dead, right? Like a, a good book comes out and everyone's talking about it. And, you know, some people might say that, that I, I also hear some people be like, oh, no one reads books, but that's not true. Like people do read books and they love books. Um, and so long form on the internet is actually a really short book. 
and I, I think that's kind of a, I think that hits a sweet spot for a lot of people um, who, um, you know, they might not want to read a 300 page book on AI, but they, they really would have liked an 80 page or 60 page book on AI. And, you know, it's this really, you know, it, it, but as soon as you put it on the internet, it stops seeming short, like, oh, wow, that's pretty short for a book. And it starts seeming like, holy shit, that's long for an article. Am I allowed to swear, by the way? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, but and, only, but only in long form. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's all about framing. It's like, um, if, if, you know, a really long article is, 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 is also just like a, you know, a, a single book chapter. So, um, I think that part of the problem is, you know, long form, if you have the nerve to do long form, which is, uh, to write long form, which is basically asking readers to dedicate a significant chunk of their time, uh, to reading what you have to write, you better put the time in. You better make it really good. You better structure it well. You better try to get rid of redundancies. You better make it like funny and enjoyable to read. You better make sure you've done your research and make it fun because, um, you, I do think people have room for a really, um, you know, a really good long form article, but like only if it's really done, you know, with the quality of a book, then it happens to be online. I think that, you know, if it's long form because the person's kind of rambling and going through, you know, and, and, and not editing well, I mean, then, then that's obnoxious. And you have pictures. How important is the art? Well, I, I think it's different people learn different ways. Some people love visuals. Some people don't. I'm someone who does. And I always just use myself as a kind of a litmus test. Like, would I love it if someone sent me an article? Would I prefer an, a long form article that I just scroll down and I'm like, oh, damn, that's a lot of paragraphs or the <laughs> same article? But, but throughout there are, uh, drawings and charts and visuals. I, I prefer the visuals. I think probably more than 50% of people agree with that. Not, not a hundred though. I mean, I think some people are probably annoyed with having the, the, how much it breaks up the flow, but visual, we, a lot of us are visual learners and it just helps, especially in a long article to just like, you know, it's like almost like you can look forward to the next visual uh, coming down four paragraphs later. And okay. Yeah. So I particularly, I, I happen to like it. How, how do you feel about the New Yorker? So New Yorkers are a perfect enjoy, example. Do you, yeah. Do you enjoy well, the New Yorker? Or no? I always think of like the really long New Yorker article as like a thing, you know, like the 20, and I actually measured one once. I think it was the one about um, <laughs> Scientology. Did you have a um, long enough ruler? Yeah. I had to, I, I had to, you know, do a lot of scrolling, <laughs> paste it into Microsoft Word. And I saw it was 24,000 words, which is like, you know, that's one of those. It's like, you know, you're reading it for 24,000 words for reference is about an 80 pages in a book. Maybe yeah, I a mean, little... that's my, my book came out to 300 and something pages and it was 104,000 words. That That's a quarter of a substantial book. Right. And so again, that seems crazy long unless you reframe and you're like, this is a tight little 80 page book. Check it out, you know, and, and, um, I think we've seen that with TV, you know, it used to be, there's a movie for two hours or there's, um, you know, um, like a half hour TV show, but like th those, there's no good reason. Those have to be the, the, you know, for, for budget reasons, you know, the has to movie makes sense for it to be two hours. Cause it's one night single, you know, a single viewing experience in a theater you can have, and it, it justifies the budget and people will pay 12 bucks to go see that, you know, so there's certain reasons that that particular time exists. But now that we have Netflix and all this, you know, YouTube, we see great things out there for, you know, Kurtzkasad is one of my favorite YouTube channels. They make 12 minute things, you know, 14 minute things. You know, that's a perfect, that's a, you know, Ted Talks was another example. They did 14 or 18 minute things. And then you've got TV series that are now actually more like, you know, 50 hour movies. And so the point is that there's no, there's no good reason that, that the, these, these kind of well-defined slots have to, you know, have any, you know, particular value over other. T so I think it's the same thing can go for writing where it's like, you know, yes, we have book length is a thing. 
and then article length is a thing. Um, and the New Yorker long articles, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's doing something different. And that's kind of what I started doing is my long posts are just about that length. There are, there, they range from, you know, some posts are 12,000 words, which is half the length of a crazy long New York article. That's like 40 pages in a book. Um, some of mine are 25,000, which is the same length of the New Yorker article. And I actually have a couple articles that are 40,000 words, which is, you know, now half of a book, half of a, of a, of a, of a, you know, normal length book. Um, the only thing I think is not great because I think that some, I like the idea of taking on a topic and instead of saying, well, it's going to be a book. So it has to be, you know, 200 to 400 pages. I can say exactly what number of pages should this particular topic be for me right now. Maybe that answer is 43 pages. Maybe that answer is 150 pages or maybe it's two pages. Um, the one thing that I do think is hard is the internet is not really, uh, you know, stuff on the internet is not, the, the the experience of reading it. If you have an iPad, it can be great. Then it's the same as reading a, as a book. But you know, you're not going to go to the beach, you know, and have a nice reading day and take your laptop. Uh, you're, you know, you can scroll on your phone, but it's it's not ideal. You know, you, you scroll forever and then it just looks like you're on your phone at the beach, which you're not really. You're reading, but it just is a bad look. And and also you lose your spot, and now you have to scroll down for a million years to find it. You know, or you so, want to go back and you want to look at an earlier page. Exactly, exactly. Who the person was that's being written about, and that's difficult right. on the phone too. And, and that's the problem with a new kind of length is that we actually don't have like the the the, the mediums quite built for that yet. Yeah, you know, it's also interesting. People sometimes try to divide the world into folks who like short form and folks who like long form. I like both. It depends. It depends on the circumstances. And I like, I read Axios articles. I also read New Yorker articles. So I don't know why everyone's always trying to pigeonhole somebody. You know, sometimes you watch a music video and sometimes you go to a concert, you know, they're different. I mean, we would never be like, oh, do you like movies or do you like half hour TV shows? And you'd be like, um, I like good versions of both. Like, and the same thing. It's like, do you like YouTube videos right. or do you like movies? The answer isn't one or the other. So who, who is your audience? So, uh, it, when you have online, you know, an online publication, um, what happens is sometimes your articles go viral here and there. And when they do, a lot of new people who've never heard of you pass through, you know, your, you know, art gallery of stuff. And it's it's a kind of a self-filtering system where the people who don't like it, they're not, they're going to read three paragraphs and be like, this guy's annoying and leave, right? Or, or they just look, scroll down, this is way too long, they're going to leave. Um, other people are going to like it. But liking it doesn't equal sticking. When I like an article, I, I barely look at who the author is. I don't really care what publications it's on. I read it. I, 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 I leave. Maybe I share it and then I leave and I forget about it. The people who happen to love it, right, who say, oh, my God, this, this is exactly how I like, you know, having something explained to me. It's exactly my sense of humor. Whatever it is, they are they, they might take notice of your name of the site they're on. They still might not, by the way. They might love the article, share it, and then forget about it. But then they're on it again three months later. And they say, and they notice a sidebar. There's a popular posts list and they say, oh my, wait a second, that other article that I loved, this is by the same person. Who is this? Right. So now it's that second or third time someone who right. loves it, it, it's that moment it clicks and they become like a fan of what's going on here. They, 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 they subscribe to the email list. They suddenly go back and they binge through all the other stuff. They, they evangelize it. They tell all their friends. Right. So if you think about that process, that, that, that's a, you know, one in 20 people or one in 50 or one, I don't know what the number is, but the, it filters the people who subscribe to your email list. They happen to be, it's the collection of all the people who happen to love what you do. And if I'm writing in my own voice and writing with my sense of humor and indulging my own curiosity, 
those people are going to be people that happen to share a lot of things with me. Curiosity, uh, yeah, they, sh they share uh, my particular sense of humor. So I always feel like if someone is um, a big wait but why reader, which is the name of my name of my blog, I always assume we would get along. I'm curious how you pick your topics, but before you answer, it's very interesting how you think about your work. And it, it reminds me of some advice I got when I started out doing this new thing, interviewing people on podcasts. And the person said, you know, don't think necessarily about what the audience wants to hear. Ask your guest about what you're truly curious about. And people will follow along and be interested because they will sense your tremendous curiosity in the conversation. Is that how you think about the topics you pick? Yeah, I think that's, that seems very intuitive to me, um, which is there's enough people out there that even if only a small percentage really jibe with your your brand of curiosity or your sense of humor or just the way you like to think about things, even if there's only a small percentage, that in a, you know, almost 8 billion person world adds up to a huge potential That's audience. A lot of folks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so even if a third of them are even, you know, on the internet reading English page, English language things, or even just say it's a fifth, you know, uh, and only one thousandth of the people who would like you ever find you that's still like a million people or something like that so um so anyway uh i, I do think that makes sense i, I think that um that there, there's there's kind of i think I, I have a lot of friends who are successful bloggers um you know you just get to know each other over time um and i think that what a lot of, one of the things we all have in common is that there's just kind of a confidence in who we are and, and, and meaning like, it's okay to just be your exact self. Just go for yeah. it, be yourself. And we have this rational understanding that, that just comes from doing some math, that there's a lot of people who will happen to like who you are. It doesn't mean that you're amazingly likable and that everyone loves you. No, you know, you, that's definitely not true. It's just that there's enough people out there who happen to, so just do your thing. And I feel like, every, you know, the, the people I know they're just acting, um, you know, James Clear, Mark Manson. Um, I, I just think of, um, you know, Randall Monroe, these people are just furiously being themselves on the internet. And yeah, so yeah, I, th I think that's correct. So, so, you write, you, it, so, so you write about a lot of things, fairly wide ranging. You write about issues of community, artificial intelligence, extraterrestrials, you know, life in other places, Elon Musk. So how do you, how do you go about picking what the thing is that you're going to dive deep into? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it has to be inside of a certain Venn diagram. The first circle of the Venn is does it like light me up? Am I like dying to like read and write about it? Do I just like, once I, you know, and, and that often comes from, I'm having a good conversation on a, you know, with someone like you at a podcast or at a lunch with a friend or um, with my wife at dinner and whatever. And, and, and something comes up, some new concept, either we discover it together in the conversation and we start talking about it or they introduce it to me, or I've always thought about it, but then suddenly talking about it with this person and their brain, suddenly it's like, oh, it just got way more interesting. Whatever it is, there's that, that moment. We all have these moments when you just, ooh, I, I'm super fascinated by this this concept or this topic or whatever it is, or this news story or this piece of history or this new kind of tech. And right. the, the difference is for me is, I, you know, just like a stand-up comedian, you know, we all have moments when we notice something funny, but a stand-up comedian is in the habit of taking out the, you know, the phone or the notepad and writing it down. That's, that's why they're a stand-up comedian because they write down all those moments. So for me, I'm always looking at things through the lens of, you know, blogging. So that, uh, if something lights me up, that's the first event circle. The second event circle is, would this make a good blog post? And not everything that's interesting necessarily would. There's a lot of like kind of complex reasons why something would fall into the second circle or not. Sometimes it would make a great blog post, but not 
not from, I'm not the person to write it for whatever reason. Um, or it would just require too big a deep dive. You know, like I've avoided, you know, things, climate change, crypto so far. And I might want to do these things that I'm not going to take those on unless I can read a ton of books and talk to a ton of people. Well, that, that's, that. that's super interesting. It brings me to this quote from you, which has fascinated me. And that is, you talk about levels of expertise and how much expertise you have to get to be able to speak fairly ably to lay people about something. And so here, here's what you said in an interview a few years ago, quote, if there's a one through 10 scale of how much you know about something, 10 is a world-leading expert, and one has absolutely never heard of the term, I started at two or three on most stuff like most laymen. I'm a layman about everything, but I'll take as long as I need to learn enough to get me to maybe like a five or a six out of 10. And you say, I'm not going to get a PhD, but if you get to a five or a six, you say you can do a Q&A with an audience on this topic for 10 hours, and I'll have a pretty good solid answer to everything. Explain that metric and how long it takes you to get up to a five or six. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's good to think about it this way because it's, it's not like there's not, it's not a binary thing. Are you knowledge, are you an expert on this or not? Are you knowledgeable or not? Um, and again, we sometimes th put these things in these buckets, just like movie length and show length or, you know, book length and article length. Sometimes these things are actually spectrums and we need to just like, you know, remember that. So I, it's, I, I didn't like, you know, go into blogging, thinking about things like this. I would, I didn't say, I'm going to go and I'm going to, I, I'm going to become the guy who, who takes people from a three to a six in knowledge. It just kind of happened naturally in that there's a lot of hunger for people who are at a three to get to a five or six. Um, and, and, and it's one of those things where it also, like, of course, everyone would like to get higher in most things, right? But it turns out getting from a three to a five or three to a six in knowledge is actually doesn't, it's the low hanging fruit. It, it happens the learning curve goes quickly there. And then when you want to get to a seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, now you have to put in, you know, it, it's diminishing returns, exponentially more hours to get there. And so it's this kind of like best bang for your buck knowledge acquisition range, I find. So if you have, if you have, a, if you're at a three and you're curious, because curiosity is the engine, otherwise there's no desire yes. to go up. If you're at a three and you're curious, it's amazing how many fives and sixes you can get to across topics. And then you get to the six. Okay. Rather than put the million hours in to get to an eight, move on. You're going to move on to something else. Get, what's, yeah. an what's an example of something about which you were a two or three, became curious about, got yourself up to a six and how much time did it take? Um, so, okay. One example is the, um, AI, AI, I artificial intelligence, artificial, yeah, artificial intelligence. See, I'm at least at a one. I'm above <laughs> a one because I know the term. <laughs> right, there scale. you go. Exactly. A one means you've never heard the term before. So, so I'm starting you know, out at a two. <laughs> you're, you're at a one and a half. Um, so, <laughs> okay. The, Sometimes it's also, you know, what, so this is talking about the other circle. It, would this make a good blog post? Partially the question there is timing. So I happened to, I, I think I got lucky with this one, but I, I've started to learn about timing better is I happened to write about AI at the perfect time. Um, and, and what I mean by that is there were a lot of people at a three who were hearing a lot about AI. It was it's kind of exploding in the, in the, in the kind of public discourse. And yet there were a lot of people at a three who, who were suddenly had this, it was a huge demand for three to six, someone, you know, for three to six transportation, basically. Um, and, and so what I did was, um, I did what most of the people at a three just did, didn't have time to do or didn't know where to start, which is I read, I don't know, four books, nothing crazy. Again, I was not trying to get to an eight or nine. I wasn't trying to go be able, I, I'm not, I wasn't trying to get to a level where I could talk to a bunch of AI experts and tell them anything they didn't You're know. You're not trying or, to get a job. 
at MIT no. in AI, right? No, I'm not going to do anything professional. No one's going to rely on me for anything with AI life or death. Uh, I'm not advising experts on anything. Um, I'm not creating new knowledge of any kind. What I'm doing is understanding what the what's the landscape here? What do the terms even mean? Like what what's the structure we can use to think about this? What and and so I was like, okay, artificial narrow intelligence versus artificial general intelligence. That blew my mind that such a simple but brilliant concept that it, I think now a lot of people knows know what that means, but at the time almost no one did. And so it was perfect. It was a perfect moment to say, "Hey everyone, check out this thing, this concept of narrow intelligence to general intelligence." And then Super intelligence. Oh my God. And it was just, and so a good gauge, again, thinking about my, the fact that the people who I'm collecting as readers are, happen to be like me, I can gauge my own experience. So I was mind blown reading Nick Bostrom's book and Ray Kurzweil and, you know, a few others. And then, you know, 50 or 60 articles and having some conversations. I was just continually, my mind was like, I can't believe that how interesting this is. That's all I need to know. I know there's a lot of other people who are, who are going to feel the exact same way as I did. You did a very well-received and famous TED Talk about procrastination. And I think, I think the current numbers of viewership of that exceeds the total number of humans in the United Kingdom. It's some scores of millions of people. And I watched it, and I am a world-class procrastinator. And I was telling the team before we started taping, like, how is this guy talking about me with, with such insight, <laughs> you tell this, I mean, you literally open up your TED talk about procrastination by talking about your senior thesis and how you left it to the last minute. And uh, listeners may not appreciate this or know this. You and I went to the same college. We had the same major. We both wrote theses. You're a bit younger than I am. Uh, yours was 90 pages. Mine was 86 pages. And we both waited till basically the end. And you say, I just want to set this up and then I want you to explain your theory of procrastination because I think this is important to everybody uh, in the world, whether they think they're a procrastinator or not, as you point out, is that there are two kinds of brains. There's like the rational decision maker and then there's the person with the instant gratification monkey, <laughs> right? What is the instant gratification monkey? Yeah. Um, so I think that a lot of things that seem like it seemed like crazy human behavior, like humans are just acting crazy, self-defeating. What are they doing? What it actually comes down to is there are different parts of the brain. And I, I like to think of them as characters, like little people living in there. And they have different wiring. They're, 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 they have different functions in the brain. And that's fine in the world that they were built to live in. And the world they were built to live in, which is a tribe of people 50,000 years ago, um, maybe even a little village um, 10,000 years ago. Um, in that world, I think probably the human brain didn't self-defeat that much. It kind of was jibing with the general motives of the person uh, and the general things they needed to do, um, which makes sense. Now, the, unfortunately, what happened is or, or I wouldn't quite say unfortunately, because I don't want to live in that world, but the civilization that it, thing, exponential progress started taking hold. And very quickly, the environment around us started getting vastly changed quickly in a blink of an eye, evolutionarily speaking, um, way quicker than our actual biology would have time to, to adjust or keep up. So what we're doing is we're living with tools for world A, except we've all been kidnapped out of that world, dropped in world B, which is an advanced civilization, and told to use the same tools 
that, that are not actually made very well for this world. So now these parts of the brain that are, you know, different functions for different things, they're, they're firing at different things. They're, they're misunderstanding things. And, and especially the, the, the character, the limbic system character that I call the, in, the instant gratification monkey, which is not an evil character. It's not, a, that's why I make it a silly monkey because it's not a bad, it's not, it's not good or bad. It just is sort of functional. monkey's fun. It's, it's, yeah, the, the, the monkeys, the monkey is, is, is also critical that every, you know, again, your dog is being run and almost entirely by an instant gratification monkey in his head, which is why you he, say, he, I think you say in your talk that, you know, people who have this brain, they just want to do stuff that's easy and fun. And if you're a dog and all you want to do is stuff that's easy and fun, you can be very successful <laughs> as, right. a, as a dog. A monkey. Right? I mean, a, 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 a monkey who spends his whole life doing easy and fun things is a very successful monkey. Like, you know, it's like you survived. Um, you, you, um, you had, you know, enough food to have free time. You conserved energy. You have friends, people, you're popular. Yeah, you're popular. You're conserving energy when you can. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's great. And so, and then, and then, um, and then you fulfill your kind of immediate needs when you need them. So now you get hungry. Okay. I go and do that exact, exact moment when I'm hungry. Right. That's fine. And instant gratification monkey is great at, that life at, at running that animal, at, at, at running the cockpit in that animal's head for that world. Now, the problem is in an advanced civilization, it's a whole different game. A lot of the immediate needs are easy and taken care of, unlike the other world. But there's all these other things. Long-term planning is needed in a way that's not needed anywhere in the animal kingdom. Um, you need to, you know, come up with long-term goals and work on something on, on you know, November 5th that you will not see the results of till March. Uh, that is completely foreign to our brains. And so um, the instant gratification monkey is going to resist that because it, it, it literally is not built to see the future that far away. So it doesn't understand why would you, ever You think of your this. future self. Yeah, you think of – that's like a different guy. Right. That that future guy. And you say – and the other, the other thing, you have, another, <laughs> you have another character which explains my life and, and a lot of my professional career very well. And it was at the end of the day – whether it's a thesis or a paper or a speech or or some finite thing, how does the procrastinating person like get you know become successful in life and move along? And then you introduce this other character, the panic monster, who I know very who I know very well. Who is the panic monster? Well, so it, 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 I think the the base situation is two characters. There's the instant gratification monkey and the rational decision maker. The rational decision maker is your you know neocortex, the the prefrontal cortex part of your brain that's very much in real time, seeing the real world around it. It's not misinterpreting the world for fifty thousand BC, and is actually thinking, okay, I can long term plan, and we have to long term plan, and it's fighting all the time over the controls with this monkey, who is very powerful in the brain and who's you know fighting with it, not because it wants to hurt you, because it thinks it's monkeys trying to help you. And so is the rational decision maker, and they're missing. They're, they're, they have two different interpretations of the world. So that's what that goes on and on and on. The procrastinator loses. The, the, the definition of the procrastinator is they they they're not good at that battle. They're, 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 their rational decision maker continues to lose to the monkey, and the monkey, you know, and and they're hating themselves, and they're so mad at themselves, and they're saying, "I'm going to change next time," and this is this is you know this is uh, my own worst enemy, and all this stuff. And so then the big question is, well, so what, what, yeah, like you said, how does the procrastinator actually do anything? And, and, and the answer is the panic monster comes rushing in the room sometimes. And the panic monster, the reason the panic monster works. So this is happens when there's a deadline that's, right. that's creeping up or you're about to, you know, you're, you're, something scares you. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to be so embarrassed if I, if I have to public speak and I'm not ready. Um, or, oh my God, I'm going to, this is going to, I'm going to get fired or I'm going to like a, whatever it is. But it, it kicks in a little late, right? And so it requires, I mean, at least in my life, 
you know, I, I've, I, I've never, I never handed in a paper early. I never do work, generally speaking, ahead of time. You know, I was still preparing for this interview. Uh, maybe I shouldn't confess. Up to the moment that we began. I, I was preparing for the first three minutes while we were talking. I was also on the internet. Get, get, Who's get, this Preet guy? Ready. <laughs> no. who, who is Preet? Go, go, maybe going I should research other, this guy. Uh, uh, this is, so we, we have, yeah. Yeah, but so so what happens is, I mean, it's just, I just found it very compelling and obviously many millions of people did too because I'd never heard it explained quite so simply and quite so compellingly. So I'll be in my slumber and think, oh, I can do it later, I can do it later, I can do it later. And then yes, then the panic monster arrives and I realize I only have X number of hours between now and the time that the brief is due or the speech has to be given or the podcast has to be taped. Uh, and then, and you say this also, and then I find myself having basically Herculean strength and stamina to do that which I thought it would be impossible to do in a short period of time. And then I wonder to myself, and I wonder if you have an answer to this, then when I'm completed and it happens and it goes successfully as, you know, not always, but, you know, often it does. I think, why couldn't I channel the energy I got from the panic monster and sort of amortize that over time and be a reasonable person instead of an idiot? The panic monster is like Popeye's spinach. It's like, it's like this, like you're, you're weak, you're getting beat up by Bluto and which is like, you know, you know the, the project or the monkey. And then, and then right. you, and then suddenly you pop open this thing of spinach and you, these muscles sprout up and you're suddenly Superman. Right. And this, this is, this is right. But why, but why can't you have, why can't you have a spinach patch? Right. No, I, uh, I mean, trust me, this <laughs> is, this time. is the bane <laughs> of my existence is this question because yeah, so the reason is this, this, right? The reason is this, that the, 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 the monkey is, it's, the monkeys, the, the panic is a, is one language the monkey does speak. And so when panic happens, like think about it, you know, you, you, the, if a tiger is running at you and you're here as, as a hunter and suddenly you have this big cat just jumps out of the woods and starts running at you. Panic, right? The monkey gets that run, you know, like life and death, uh, fight or flight. And so what happens is the rational decision maker can make all the rational arguments that he wants and say, you're going to, you're going to regret this. This is, you, you can have so much fun later tonight if you just do your work now. It, completely and utterly sensible, right? It, it, it just makes perfect sense. And yet the monkey's thinking, sure, sure, sure. That all sounds great, but not right now. No, I'm not doing it in this minute. Some other minute, some other, you know, Tim, 10 minutes from now, will do it. Not me. And he, that just goes on and on and on. Right. And so, um, the, the, the rational decision maker is screaming in a language that the monkey does not speak. Panic monsters then runs into the room. The monkey suddenly is incredibly attuned to that and, 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 and freaks out, you know, and I, I use the metaphor, he runs up the tree and the rational decision maker can actually take the wheel and do all the things that he's been trying to get you to do. And so it's not that it's, it's that you have this, um, this, uh, superhuman strength in that moment because the monkey is alert and on your side suddenly and gets it. The monkey gets the situation suddenly for the first time. Um, and so the, when you want to um, spread that out and say, you know, yeah, I would be so much, it's it's like you said, sometimes, I think a lot of the time, it's a big tragedy, which is that you don't achieve what you want in life because of this problem, or you don't do as good work. But even in the situation, like you're saying, sometimes you crush it. Sometimes you really do great work in those situations and you, you're you super successful with it. And, and, and it, even then, your, the journey itself is awful for you. So maybe the end goal is the same, but most of your life is spent in the journey and you're sitting there. It, it, so there's another term that I like to bring into this, which is the dark playground. So this is a very specific right. place. Right. This is a place that you spend. So it's not like, you know, the procrastinator is rarely sitting around having a nice, guilt-free, happy, pure time. And then the last second panics and does it. That's not how it works. If, if this is a 
a one week project and you're doing the whole thing the last night, the first six and a half days is they're not happy for the procrastinator because the procrastinator oh, no, usually they're not right, happy at all. Right. So you're not working, but you're not happy either. It's like the monkey won't let you work. <laughs> it's, it's actually insane. It's insane. And so, and, and so I, I call it the dark playground, which is, I, it's, you know what it feels like. It's that you're, you're, you're dicking around at a time when you know you shouldn't be. And it's just this, you're, you're soaking in a, in a swamp of guilt and dread and anxiety and self-loathing. And, um, and so you, and sometimes you can distract yourself for 30 seconds and you, you know, you tweet something and, uh, people like it. Okay. Uh, 30 seconds of, you know, or, or five <laughs> minutes of, oh, oh, this is fun. And then you can kind of distract you're your, you're describing me, Mr. Urban. <laughs> <laughs> once again, once again, or your lunch are, arrives and it's lunchtime. You're having a great thing or, you know, you go have sex. Have, okay, have great. You, and, yeah. Have you, have you performed some machine merger brain thing on me? You may have. Well, here's the thing. The have. reason that the reason that people clicked with the Ted talk, um, uh, is just that this is a very, very common problem. You know, we all look, think of many songs are written about love and breaking up and heartbreak, right? Because it's just a human experience. This is another human experience because it's not, it, it's, it's, it's There's not, not the, a lot of music about it. <laughs> no, no, it's much like sexy because the songwriters never get to it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The people with this problem never start their music career. Um, but, but they're not everyone, you know, and then I'm going to get to the great, what I think is the great insight of your, talk about procrastination in a moment, but sticking to deadline-based projects, you know, the papers do, the speeches do, or the PowerPoint is due. You know, not everyone's like you and me. Like my daughter's not, for example. There are people who don't need the panic monster and they work diligently over time. And there are, I don't know if you know this, crazy when I discovered this, there are some people who turn things in early. I've never yeah. done that once in my entire Adam life. Adam Grant calls that a Precrastinator. He's the opposite of me. He gets an assignment. All this anxiety comes from the looming, from having it looming oh, he, over he his head. He gets the panic monster at the start. Y yeah, I don't know if it's. It, it might. It's either. It's either he gets panic, or he gets like fear of the panic monster later, or it's just the <laughs> the looming cloud over him of that the thing that's not done is causing him a certain level of anxiety. It doesn't cause me, and. Um, and so he will do something right away, which he actually argues is is also problematic and that you're, you don't do your what? best work. You don't do your best work oh, because I see, I see. you rush it out. You don't give yourself time to percolate. And he thinks there's some happy medium. And that's fine. A lot of people, but a lot of people re misinterpret that as, oh, procrastination is good. And I say, no, it's good to a very light extent. And then it's, it's just extremely bad uh, if you if, if it goes to, um, to the extreme. It's there's, yeah. The thing that really resonated with me is you're, you're saying all this stuff that reminds me of myself. And you describe the panic monster who I have known very, very, you know, we know each other very well over the course of my life. But then you say, you know, the panic monster works fine and allows people to be functional procrastinators when there's a deadline. But there are things in life that are important, like career prospects and getting into shape and maintaining and gaining additional relationships for which there is no deadline. And when there's no deadline, the panic monster doesn't show up. So, and tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, oversimplifying it. Talk about talk about that kind of procrastination and how insidious that is, because that's the thing that really struck me. Well, so let's bring Popeye back in. Um, I think that when there's a deadline, some external pressure that's not in your hands that you, you're scared of, eventually the panic monster rushes in the room with his cape. You know, Popeye takes the spinach, grows the muscles, punches Bluto out, saves the day, right? If you look at what really matters in life, the kind of things that matter on your deathbed, you know, that you think back on written in your eulogy that, you know, that you regret deeply if you don't do later, the majority of those things are not deadline based. At least they don't, at least at the beginning, especially when things are, you're trying to get some momentum started in something, there's no deadline. Uh, and this, again, in, inside, you know, within your career, 
So many people are, you know, they can't even start chasing the career they really want. Uh, and then also, uh, outside your career. I mean, seeing your family enough is a classic example of something people regret once it's gone. And, you know, you, you take it for granted when it's here, even though you know you should be doing it more, you procrastinate on it. You procrastinate on getting in shape, but going on the diet, about breaking up with someone who you know you should break up with or getting out of a marriage you know you should get out of, quitting a job. So these are all these big things where there's no spinach coming. There's no heroic panic monster rushing in to save the day because you can have a kind of a deep, um, blunt kind of general widespread panic in your life about something, but that you need the acute panic. And that doesn't happen without the deadline. You can be depressed as hell. No, you should be changing your ways, but there's, it's different than saying this is due tomorrow. Oh my God. And like, you know, you kind of sit up and you kind of can't, you know, food doesn't matter. Going in the bathroom doesn't matter. And you're just kind of panicked. That never happens. And so you can be so upset about something or whatever, but there's no, you, you, there's no spinach. There's no, so Bluto will punch you to the ground and beat you in every day of your life and you will end up dying and never having gotten your spinach there and doing the thing you do unless you find a way to actually do stuff without the panic monster. And this is, this is one of the, this is the major challenge. And by the way, when I talk about, when we talk about chronic procrastinators, we're talking about um, people who do stuff at the very last second when they have a deadline, which is a subset of people. Um, there's a bigger group. Uh, that they're part of that includes the Adam Grants, for example. It includes people who, you know, because those people are driven by the deadline also. They, they do something right away because there's a deadline. They don't want to get anywhere near. So the people doing things early, a lot of them are not all, but a lot of them are driven, also driven by the deadline. That's still the engine for them. They just comes out in a different way. So those people too, a lot of people, uh, even non-procrastinators in the classical sense, are still deadline driven. And when there's no deadline, suddenly they, they're indistinguishable from the, from the, you know, the, the, the all nighter yeah. guy. It's making me think, you know, what's a part of your life that is basically all deadline driven? And it's school. You know, it's grade school, it's high school. There's, you know, a test or there's class participation and you have exams and then you take the SATs or the ACTs. You have to apply to college if you want to go to college. There's a deadline. And, and then if you go to graduate school, you have all of that. And so you can end up in your mid-20s having achieved a success largely because of the panic monster. And then, you know, in, in life, I mean, certain jobs, obviously, there are deadlines, you know, but general career success is not like school, um, at least in most careers. Do you have a thought on, on whether we should be doing something different during the school years to cause people to think more long-term and not be reliant on the panic monster because it doesn't solve the things for which you'll have the greatest regrets at the end of your life? Yeah, I, I think in general, there's like a, a set of skills and habits and values that are that are nurtured and grown in the school years uh, based on the structure of what's needed and what matters then. And then you go to the real world and it's a pretty different set of, it's a different game. So you get really good at one kind of game. And you build up all these, you know, values and you judge yourself based on that kind of game and your habits, your work habits all develop around that kind of game. And then you go into suddenly you get to the real world and welcome to welcome to the to the real game here. Oh, by the way, it's like pretty different than the game you're used to. And it's some of it is completely the opposite of the game you're used to. The things you the, the way you you won that game, actually, that's going to hurt you here. That's, you know, you, you win the school game with conformity, with um, relying on external structures to push you, and you just have to do stuff within them. You have to kind of please the, the, the authority and do things the right way and not stand out. 
and definitely don't get think outside the box too much. You know, do the assignment the way you're supposed to, right? And sit and, and listen in class, and you know, do, you know, listen and sit still and and uh, memorize, right? The, the, it gets to the real world, and it's like, uh, so what? Why are we? You know, yes. Yeah, so the big answer is, I definitely think that 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 uh, um, there should be much more game matching. There should be much more. We should have school mimic the real world much more. If we can, I mean, this is easy for me to say. I mean, changing education is incredibly difficult and um, you do need to teach kids a basic set of things, which is not something that has to happen in the real world. So there is a, there is different needs then, you know, you, it's not that easy to just mimic the real world when you have to teach them stuff, but we could be doing a lot better. And I think that's part of, yeah, I think that's part of the problem is people like me and you, we got by uh, in game number one. We, we were able to get by as procrastinators and it never really hurt us because what actually mattered, the big picture was the grade. If you got the A, it didn't matter what, it wasn't some better A you could have gotten. You got the A. Right. In the it's real, just not yeah. good for your, for your health. It's not good for your health. <laughs> your, no. Yeah. But, but I will say, so I'm the, I'm a terrible, terrible procrastinator when it comes to deadlines to have better mental health. In fact, I adopted a strategy in college where I tried very, very hard. You know, we talked about the fact that you, you, you get an assignment, it's due in a week those first six days where you're not working on, on it are not so pleasant. So I would sometimes try to be Adam Grant and start it on the first day. And what would end up happening is th there's this sort of netherworld of procrastination in which you're actually sitting with your computer open, uh, you know, or your pen and your legal pad, and, you, and you're trying to do the assignment, but you're not really doing it because your heart's not in it and the panic monster hasn't shown up and you're very inefficient. And so I would sometimes spend, when I tried to be, you know, that guy, you know, four days futilely trying to get the assignment done, an assignment that should only take two days. I would spend four days, you know, doing it in a half-assed way, you know, not doing anything else, you know, not having any fun with, with the monkey. Purgatory. And then at the end of the day, and that, yeah, but then I would still have the panic monster show up and pull an all-nighter on the last night. And so I adopted a strategy of just knowing myself and deliberately not even trying to work on it until the last minute. And that actually helped a little bit. Do you have a reaction to that? So, yeah. First of all, you were just you just now were in my head with that description of the four days thing. I mean, I <laughs> I actually drew this out as a comic once, where a very common experience of mine is, and in, in the comic, there's a guy, you know, me working at my desk, miserable. Two friends come and say, "Hey, we're going to a movie. You want to come?" And I say, "No, I definitely can't. I have a ton of work oh, to do." Yes. They go to the movie. They come back and say, Hey, how's the work? And I, and I, this shameful, shameful, and I probably don't even admit it to them. I haven't done anything. <laughs> and so I skipped the movie. Yeah. I did, basically, the rational decision maker wouldn't let me go to the movie, but the monkey wouldn't let me work. So I do neither. It's like, the, the, you know, one character says, Well, I'm not working. The other character says, Well, then we're not having fun. And now you're sitting here in this crazy, right. shameful. But I, so I fixed, so I, fi so I learned that at some time, like when I was like 20 years old. So then I started going to the movie. So, so this is where you just, this is where we depart. And I, I think you're, you're, I, I'm, I'm impressed actually, because one of the, the great procrastinator traits is delusion and denial about who they are and about, you know, about the, 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 the magnitude of the problem. So the, instead of resigning off and they, they have all this hope, they think next one's going to be great. They read one good article, <laughs> one article, on hope. one article <laughs> on tips for procrastination. And suddenly they, they think I'm done. I, I just solved it. I just solved it with this article. We have this incredible delusional optimism, or at least I do. So I always think, no, next paper, I'm definitely doing it the right way. This one, even as I, as I say this, I have a book I'm doing, and I'm actually doing another book after this. And 
in my head, I 100% think that the next book is going to be totally different. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, everything's going to be different. This is how I am. And so I'm impressed that you actually had the kind of uh, hopelessness, the, the rational hopelessness that I, that, that allows you to actually adjust your schedule based on reality. I'm impressed that that's, that's, that's a step up, I think, from where I am. I guess I'm just slightly less delusional. And the other way that I think I've done a reasonable job is even though I'm terrible about the things with deadlines and I need the panic monster, I, I think I have some version of a long-term panic monster with respect to you know bigger things in life like the arc of my career. Because I, I, did spend, I did find times to do those things that you need to do to build relationships. So I think I'm very far gone in the one category and, and hopefully will have not as many regrets as I might have had in the other category. Is that uncommon? Yeah, I think, um, no, I, I think, I think that's, I think it probably is uncommon, honestly. I think that you've reached an interesting middle ground where you've, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, it's hard for me to know. I don't have the stats on that, but I would say that, uh, I think that that is some actual progress that I think some procrastinators don't make. And I think that's great. I think you end up with a lot fewer regrets because in the end, you know, it's like you're making, you're, you're basically saying, okay, if I'm going to be this way, I'm not going to, ruin the journey by being this way. I'm just going to accept it and make, and still enjoy the, the problem is I think um, that some people it's, it's hard to have that time pre the work being done as truly happy playground. It's still, it still is dark playground for a lot of people because it's looming. So I think um, if you can truly like, ex, you know, accept you're going to do it at the last second, have that one, you know, period of time be miserable and actually be in like kind of a guilt-free, satisfying, uh, leisure time or, or free time before that. I think that's amazing. I think that's an amazing kind of hack you've come up with without fully fixing the boat. You've kind of fixed it. You know, you, you've, yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Tim Urban after this. You have this phrase that denotes a concept that I think is very interesting and I think very relevant today. And when I first saw it, uh, I, I misread the term. And the term that you use is pluralistic ignorance. And I, I, the first time I saw the term in prepping for the interview, I saw it as pugilistic ignorance, which maybe is not that far off. What is pluralistic ignorance and why should we care about it? Uh, there's, a, there's a whole kind of set of, I think if you want to really understand societies, you have to think about individual psychology and then group psychology and like how, you know, what happens to individual psychology when you put a hundred or a thousand or a million of it in the same room together in the same place together. What now, what happens? What's the, you know, what, what, what emergent properties start happening? Um, and so it's there. I, I like to think of it as uh, think about when I think about pluralistic ignorance, the, the way I like to think about it is there's, just like we have two characters that I've been talking about, well, let's try two new characters. Uh, one is what we would call inner self, um, which is just, you know, you know, in this case is just, you know, what you're thinking in your head, what your opinion on something, your morals about something. And then there's what you say. There's outer self. Outer self is, repre is it represents what you, um, what you express, what you allow from inner self to come out, what comes out, right? So sometimes, ideally, when you're being authentic, uh, and if you're in a safe environment to be so, um, and you feel good about who you are, and a bunch of these important things are in place, then, then they will match each other. You'll just be who you are. You'll, 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 there'll be no shame. There'll be no fear. 
there'll be no reason to hold it back. You just, if you, if you have a, a viewpoint or a certain, you know, a certain thing you want to say or a certain thing, way you feel or a certain thing you think is right or wrong, uh, morally, um, or intellectually, then you'll just say it. There's no reason not to. Why wouldn't you? And this magical thing happens when we all do that. If a group of people are all saying what they're thinking, what, then basically the outer self is removed you know, as a, an entity, inner selves are just connecting, like, like, like wiring up together. So a group of people, you know, 10 people in a room or a hundred, and they're all being exactly themselves and they're, and they're having a conversations and they're saying what they think. What happens is, um, uh, you know, the, the, first of all, you're going to see a lot of disagreement because why would everyone happen to agree on everything? It doesn't make sense more often than not, you know, we're all super unique. So we all have a different take. We blend our life experience with a certain topic, whether it's a political topic or something. And, and we come up with some kind of, you know, nuanced, you know, version of, of, of the, 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 an opinion. Now, what about when all of those are connecting and you're hearing everyone else's things and you're arguing and debating and the, 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 the things that are misguided that are actually wrong factually will quickly get, quickly get, you know, discovered, you know, in the big brain being formed by all these little brains like neurons connecting together into a bigger brain the big brain becomes very smart because it can quickly you know if one person has a truth that no the other 99 haven't discovered well that that it'll spread and that truth will quickly get known by the big brain but if but if 99 have a falsehood um and one can prove it wrong all the other 99 can drop it because oh oh it's wrong so it's like this incredible um, capacity for human collaboration intellectual collaboration um, and this is when we're at our best, you know, this is why we have a civilization when no one in the world knows how to build, a, you know, a building or, a, a, you know, it, but all together have a collective knowledge, which is super intelligent, which is way more than the sum of its parts. Now, unfortunately, that's not how things often are when there's, we, we have a capacity to um, get our identity attached to certain viewpoints, whether it's religious or political or moral, there's, you know, the sexual, there's certain things that light up what I call the primitive mind, which is a, 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 it's synonymous with the instant gratification monkey, but it's, this is kind of a wider application of it here, which is just general, like that part of our brain gets attached, actually likes to take ideas and, and stitch it to your identity. And now instead of just saying, no, I am just a, a curious awareness, you know, I am just this, this is the inner self. No, no, the, the, the primitive mind thinks, no, 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 I need to protect myself. I am my set of viewpoints. I am this religion. I am this, I am a liberal. I am uh, Christian, you know, and, and, and quickly I am a lawyer and, and it starts to say, that's who I really am. Cause it doesn't have, you know, it, it, it comes from a world 50,000 years ago where, you know, individual authenticity wasn't, uh, doesn't, wasn't good getting you anywhere. You wanted to be part of the tribe, be, be, you know, be one with it. So that psychology gets active in certain topics. And what happens is certain people now will start to say, this is what we think and you better all think it. And, and if you differ from me politically, I'm not going to say, oh, your idea is wrong. Let's look at the idea together, like kicking a science experiment around. I'm going to say you are bad because in when I'm in that psychology, I actually think of ideas and people as the same. So I am this idea. And if you're expressing that, that means that you are actually a threat to me. And, and, and as opposed to like your idea disagrees with my idea. No, you are a different kind of person. You're on the, you're, you're, you're not part of us anymore. You're not one of us. People like us don't think that. And so you get outgrouped and you get ostracized and you get, you know, lambasted and you get smeared and all these social punishments, which for a social species are unbelievable, you know, penalties, real, real ones that are. And so the same part of our brain that identifies with ideas is also terrified of those kinds of ostracism punishments and stuff like that. So, 
everyone falls in line. And what happened, what, what does falling in line mean? Does it mean everyone thinks the same thing? No, what it means is that everyone starts concealing their inner selves and the outer selves all start expressing the same exact thing. And once you, that, once that happens, you could, that can stick for so long because now, no matter what, everyone is alone in their own heads, assuming that everyone else must think opinion A, because opinion A is the popular opinion, and opinion B and C and D are the taboo opinions. So all the people who think B, C, and D assume they're the only one, because that's all they hear. They can't see what's in people's heads, and no longer is what is in people's heads coming out freely. So everyone is, is, assumes they're alone. Everyone thinks everyone else must think this thing, even if that's not true. And so now there's so much fear. You, and then eventually what happens is people start to believe opinion A more, because they hear it. That's all they hear. And so now everyone is kind of um there there's opinion a is kind of playing dictator uh is is the totalitarian dictator over this group's intellectual life and instead of having this big you know rich brain of diverse thinking you know or neurons connecting together you have one opinion that is running the show that is that is holding the you know the shadow of its cudgel is hanging over the social interactions and this happens all the time and all of us are guilty all of us have been the person enforcing that whether we like to admit it or not we've also been the person that has been too scared to speak out because we're scared of it and we've also at some time, I'm sure we've been the person that does the thing that can break this, which is we've been courageous. We've said, you know what? I don't actually think, you know, everyone, everyone's, you know, it's the, this group of friends is all talking shit about this other person, how bad, and they're, they're being kind of mean, right? And it's, it's the, clearly the, it's the culture to be mean about this, this person we all hate. And at some point, all of us had been that brave person and just said, you know what? I think like, like, come on, like we're being a little over the top. I, I think I kind of like them actually. And suddenly someone else can say, yeah, you know what? Actually, that, that, that's, you know, it, very quickly people start to say, wait a second, maybe not everyone doesn't think that person's awful or whatever. And it can, or, or everyone like pretends to like this band, but no one actually likes them, but everyone thinks everyone's so cool to like them. So everyone likes them. And, and someone finally says, I don't actually like this movie or I don't like this song. And then everyone starts to say, you know, what? I don't either and whatever. So I obviously can go on forever with examples, but it's this core idea of, we have this amazing ability to form a super brain. We also have a tendency because of our primitive brains that developed in a long ago tribal time, tribal time. We have this tendency to fall into echo chambers and this, it, then it, get, it generates a life of its own. And then every, and then all the group intelligence goes away and we become very dumb as a group. So is there a particular current social or political phenomenon that gives rise to this thinking and the reason you write about this? Oh, of course. I mean, First of all, go to any time. Does, does this really happen? Does this really happen? <laughs> go to any time, any country, and you're going to find this, first of all. Um, but it can, it can be worse and better. And I think right now we're in a time probably because of social media and because of tribal media and a lot of these other things that I, I've written about. Um, it's, it, there is, uh, pluralistic ignorance is on the rise. It's gone viral. And um, so I, th I think we see this with a ton of well-intentioned people on the left who just wanted actually, you know, social justice. This idea is so um, it, it, it lights them up and they want to these are genuinely good people who want to make the world better, who who want to who hate the fact that not everyone has the same position in society and not everyone has. A, it's not fair. And they, they don't like that. They want justice. And this is a great instinct. But there is a certain group on the left right now, um, you know, which people call wokeness or whatever. Um, that uh, has taken on this kind of, um, we have one very specific uh, prescription for how to fix things. We have one very specific worldview about how things are. And instead of just throwing that into the ring and saying, hey, which I would, I love to have those people's viewpoint in the ring within the part of the larger discussion. They have said, uh, this is the only acceptable way to see things. And if you don't, uh, if you see things in a different way, even if you have the same motives, even if you also care about justice and you want to help the same situations, 
If you see it differently and you disagree with us, we will destroy you. We will hurt you. And what happens? We're not that brave as a species. We quickly go into our holes. And so quickly, this, the, the, the rich discussion about social justice topics that could be so, that is so critical to solve problems. The super brain is that what can solve these problems. The super brain disappears and we end up, uh, with a bunch of people terrified to talk about it and, and just wanting to kind of avoid it. Uh, and, and so, so that's one. I'm not weird about that because part of what you're describing is a marketplace of ideas. And that's the, the way we talk about this stuff and Supreme Court cases talk about the marketplace of ideas, and that's how we talk about the First Amendment. Why isn't it the case that if if the minority view is the one that people are shaming others into mouthing or keeping or keeping quiet about a contrary view, why is it the minority silencing that prevails? Does that make sense? Well, first of all, if it were not the if 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 the if their ideas were convincing enough that the majority enough people came around to them, they wouldn't need to be bullies. Right. If it, it, oh, no, I don't need to. If if I think that slavery is bad, I don't need to bully anyone into that because everyone agrees with that. Right. It's it's that that's such a compelling idea in today's world that why would you ever need to bully anyone into silence? If someone wants to go write an article about why slavery is good, uh, I'm not worried about them. I'm not concerned about uh, now. Everyone's going to believe that. I think they're going to be laughed off the stage. Right. So it, it, in general, bullying only needs to happen. Coercion, if it, 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 coercion only needs to happen in the absence of pers- when persuasion is not working, when persuasion is not good enough. So I think in general, it's going to be a group of people who cannot get their ideas to be held by the majority the fair way by, you know, persuasion. And so they need to cheat. And cheating is using saying, well, okay, you know, if my idea can't win in the boxing ring, no boxing's allowed. If anyone boxes my idea, they're going to be sent to jail, social jail, um, because, or they're going to be fired. That's a way to say, okay, well, you're, you know, now I can crown my idea champion without having to have it fight. And it's just, um, I think if people see it that way, the problem is, the, but the, the framing is very clever. Right now, what I, I think what I'm saying, I think someone listening would think, okay, this person is pro-social justice, is probably pretty progressive himself, uh, and does not like bullying and does not like discussions being shut down and does not like pluralistic ignorance being enforced. But what this would be framed as is, oh, I, I thought Tim was a good person, but it turns out he's a right wing. He turns out he's a right winger. It turns out he is a he is a racist right winger, whatever you want to say. This is a, such a transparent, you know, childish smear attack. But the problem is with pluralistic ignorance. Ninety nine out of hundred people can think well, that's stupid. He doesn't seem like a racist right winger right now. But no one's going to say it. And so the only thing you would hear, you know, on Twitter about this would be. uh Tim is this and, and, and this, that can harm me, right? So that is, it, it makes it very scary to speak out and say obvious things that almost everyone would agree with. Now, now, by the way, I want to, I want to add that this, you know, it, it, anytime you start to get cocky about other people's pluralistic ignorance, you have to be careful because there's also an anti-woke movement, right? Which is, it has very high-minded parts that I think are making great points, and, and then other parts that are actually using this as a new kind of tribalism that are were suddenly not just as woke bad, but anything left. Oh, you know, you, if you defend anything left, you're you're one of them. You're woke. You're one of the. And there's a very there's a lot of social pressure now on the anti-woke side, which is turning into a different kind of pluralistic ignorance where you have to. The only thing you're allowed to say is that wokeness is the devil and the worst thing in the whole world, and that and that nothing is the fault of anything except for wokeness. And that's another kind of pluralistic ignorance. I feel, I feel that pressure because I, while I have some readers that, um, get really mad at me when I criticize wokeness, I have other readers that will be so disappointed and angry at me if I say anything other than a critique of wokeness. When I, when I criticize Trump, when I criticize, you know, forget even Trump, if I just say, you know, if I defend a certain 
aspect of wokeness. Um, I, I get shit from that side because you can feel the pressure. Uh, and it's, this, it's not, that's why I don't think wokeness is the problem. I think it's the environment is the problem. And if it weren't wokeness, it would be a hundred other things. And I think that probably in the MAGA communities, you're going to find anyone who says maybe Trump isn't the right guy. Even if we have our, you know, even if he says a lot of the right things, maybe he's not the right guy, they're going to be ostracized in that community. So it, we have a problem here, which is that the, the current environment is actually enabling, uh, I think is, 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 is fostering a lot of, a lot of this right now. Final question. You mentioned this new book that's coming out, The Story of Us. I'm just very curious, given our discussion about procrastination and pulling all-nighters, what was the workflow for your book? You couldn't do that in one night, right? Yeah. Um, so this was an example where I've been direly lacking my Popeye spinach. Um, <laughs> I've been... <laughs> Bluto, the book... Bluto the book has been punching me around for five straight years right now. And it's been very unpleasant. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, this, this was a, a cold reminder to me, that, man, you didn't have a deadline. Your publisher didn't give you a yeah, deadline. They did, but it's, a, it was too soft. Unfortunately, it was, it was, uh, oh, it was the only reason I ever was able to write a book was they were pretty strict. Well, the problem that, is that other, which I blew past by about two months. Well, the, that's the thing is other authors told me, which I wish they hadn't. They told me, uh, you know, that those deadlines are, you know, everyone, everyone misses their deadline. I was like, oh, great. Well, now, and, uh, it was, yeah, that, that, that killed the, so the panic monster remained in hibernation for you. Yeah. That's right. The panic monster has not shown up. And again, it's not that I've been sitting here free of panic. It's this kind of, it's this kind of broad, blunt panic about my, the, the years are going by. The, the, I, I want to make this point. It's important to get these points out there now. Uh, I have other projects I'm dying to work on, you know, all this, but that's not acute panic. And, and the monkey doesn't understand the language of blunt, long, you know, big, big picture depression. Uh, it only stands, it only understands the acute panic. And so, yeah, it's been really hard. Um, I'm, I'm finally getting very close. I've had to make some crazy bets with friends to try to create a panic monster. <laughs> I was going to have to pay a huge amount of money to, you know, if I hadn't get a certain draft in at a certain day to my friend Liv Bury. Um, I, my friends Philip and, uh, uh, Gray, uh, have been, you know, weekly deadlines I've been giving myself using them. So it's, I, I've been trying to duct tape this broken boat as well as I can without the help of the panic monster engine. But man, it's been, it's been rough. Maybe AI can help at some point in the future for your next book. <laughs> Tim, Urban, you've been really generous with your time. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for being on the show and, and good luck with the book and with the blog. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. My conversation with Tim Urban continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, Head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. There is so much news going on in the world every day, especially in the last week. But I want to end the show this week by taking a moment to remember Madeleine Albright, who died last week of cancer at the age of 84. As most of you know, Albright was the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State. But did you know that, in fact, when she was appointed to that position in 1997 by President Bill Clinton, she became the highest-ranking woman in the history of American government? She was also an immigrant. Born in Czechoslovakia, Albright and her family were twice forced into exile as refugees, first by the Nazis and later when the Soviet-backed Communist Party took control in Prague. In 1948, at the age of 11, Madeleine Albright landed in America. She would later say, 
Becoming a U.S. citizen is the most important thing that ever happened to me. I might say the same. Only in America, she would say, did her family find a country willing to embrace them as full citizens. Quote, My father said that when we were in Europe during World War II, people would say, We are sorry for your troubles and hope that you have everything you need. By the way, when will you be leaving to go back home? But in America, people said, We are sorry for your troubles and hope that you have everything you need. By the way, when will you become a citizen? Later, as a diplomat and policymaker, Albright fought so that America could continue to be a home for people fleeing oppression. In 2016, in the midst of the Syrian refugee crisis, she said, quote, America resettles more refugees than any other nation because it reflects one of our noblest traditions as a nation, providing support to those who are most vulnerable. When I came here as a child, I will never forget sailing into New York Harbor for the first time and beholding the Statue of Liberty. I did not have to face refugee camps or the kind of danger that many refugees endure. But like all refugees, I shared a hope to live a safe life with dignity and a chance to give back to my new country. End quote. After being nominated to be Secretary of State, Albright had the jarring experience of finding out that her family history was not what she'd been told. She learned that she was of Jewish heritage and that her parents had converted to Roman Catholicism during World War II. She also discovered that 26 family members, including three grandparents, had been murdered in the Holocaust. Her parents never once told her, she said. This week I came across some recent reflections by Albright, written just months before her death. They are excerpted from the new afterword of her most recent book and published in the Washington Post. She writes about the process of overcoming hardship and how it is resilience of spirit, not intellect, that is the essential ingredient of a full life. In Albright's words, quote, Collectively, we have had to bounce back not only from the pandemic, but also from doubts about our willingness to pursue social justice, our power to make self-government succeed, and our capacity to prevent advanced technology from causing more harm than good. Worldwide, we have undergone a period of trial that has changed us in ways not yet fully revealed. Clearly, our future leaders will have to be gutsy and resourceful, and so each in our own way will we. To those who despair of that possibility, I have a measure of sympathy, but little patience. There is no shortage of worthwhile work to be done, and as those broken headstones remind us, no surplus of seasons in which to achieve our goals. So let us buckle our boots, grab a cane if we need one, and march. End quote. Amen. Rest in peace, Secretary Madeleine Albright. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Urban. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. 
Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.